Welcome to The Lit Fantastic. I'm your host, Neil Aiken. This is a brand new podcast series in which we talk to writers and authors at various stages of their career about their favorite or strangest obsessions. For the most part, the conversation just goes. We, uh, we don't really follow a script. Um, I ask a few questions. We kind of banter back and forth. And we try to keep it all wrapped up in roughly half an hour. For our first episode, we decided to go big. Like really big, as big as a world or as big as a conversation around building a world. Uh, we sit down with Eugenia Lay, poet and author of Blood, Sparrows, and Sparrows, which was published in 2014 by Four Way Books, uh, which won the 2015 W. Litzer Prize in Poetry and was also a finalist for the National Poetry Series and the Yale Younger Poets Prize. Her writing has appeared in numerous publications, including Indiana Review, The Colleges, North American Review and Best New Poets 2010. Uh, she received her MFA from Sarah Lawrence College and has been the recipient of fellowships and awards from Poets and Writers Magazine, Kundiman, The Frost Place, Rattle, and the Asian American Literary Review. Eugenia lives and writes in Brooklyn, New York. This interview was recorded June of 2016 in the KBOO Portland Community Radio Station Studios. We are grateful to KBOO for providing us space and time and encourage you to check out their other programming, both live and on podcast via their site, kboo.org. We'd also encourage you to check out future episodes of The Lit Fantastic via our blog at www.thelitfantastic.com. So without further ado, let's move on to the actual conversation. This is Neil Aiken. I'm talking today with Eugenia Lay uh, for The Lit Fantastic. Um, Eugenia, could you take a, could you briefly introduce yourself, uh, let us know a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, and what you write? Sure. Uh, my name is Eugenia, like Neil said. I recently published my first collection of poems called Blood Sparrows and Sparrows through four-way books at the end of 2014. Um, I, uh, I also recently got married in March. I don't know if that is relevant, but sort of uh, the thing in my life that I am consuming most of my attention these days. Um, I also live in Brooklyn, and uh, I am the poetry editor at Hyphen Magazine. Well, congratulations on your on your recent recent marriage, and uh, thank you. I, it sounds like a really full plate right now. Actually, <laughs> it's like writing, editing, yeah. and uh, and forming a new life together. So. Yeah, I mean, there, until very recently, I was working at a finance tech firm, which mm-hmm. didn't allow me to have any give any kind of attention to any of the various parts of my life, and so I recently quit that, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, what is the next next role for me um, or the next journey. But yeah, it's really fun to be to have a partner in in life uh, to sort of be a sounding board for all the little annoying decisions that I make every day. <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. Okay. Um, so I, I kind of can can relate on some level the, uh, the, the plotting out of a new journey or a new path. I, 
you, I, you know, having finished my PhD recently, I just find myself also trying to figure out, well, what is the world that I now inhabit? And what am I supposed to be doing with my, with my training and my skills and my experience? Um, yeah. It's, it's kind of exciting, but at the same time, it's very nerve-wracking. It's like, what's next? Right, especially after something as amazing and also harrowing as a PhD. You've invested yourself for so many years, and now that you know, you're know you a doctor and you've got this thing behind you, it's like, well, now what? It's like square one, you have to you know, figure out what the next season looks like. It's, it is a little scary. It is. Um, well, let, let's let's talk about uh, about things that may, hopefully aren't scary, but might be uh, <laughs> might also be on our minds a lot. Um, for for you, are are there things that uh, you as a writer or you as an individual um, have found yourself obsessing over or have become a great fan of over the years? Maybe maybe they're tied to your to your writing. Maybe there's something completely independent. Maybe they come out of a fandom, or maybe they're just uh, an idiosyncratic, eccentric um, obsession of some sort. You know, it's funny because today I was thinking a lot about one of these obsessions. And it's not, I don't know if you could call it an obsession exactly, but um, here, let me try to find this uh tweet that Michael Schmelzer, um, another poet, said on Twitter recently, he said, you know, when people follow us, when they listen, what is it exactly that we want to convey to them? Is it anger, hope, joy, love, all of this? And I've been thinking a lot about how to humanize the world. And I know that sounds like such a big topic, but... Um, I, I recently read Hanya Yana Gihari's uh, A Little Life, and then I read um, a YA book called All the Bright Places, and both of them dealt with tough topics like suicide. And suicide is something that I've thought about um, for a long time, ever since I was 13. And, and when I was 13, that was the first time you know I, I played with some pills, and the first time I really thought about taking my own life. And I think after reading those two books, I was like, you know, I need something that's going to lift me up. And that's never what I usually mm-hmm. look for when I read books. Usually I want to be broken. I want to be, um, I want to be reminded of what, it, what makes us human. But for the first time, I really found myself, you know, wanting to be told that everything's going to be okay. So what I did was I went and for the first time read all seven of the Harry Potter books <laughs> and, and, you know, my sister, my husband, everyone had been telling me I need to read these books. And, you know, I tried years ago and just couldn't get into them. But suddenly they spoke to me and I found myself really engrossed in this world where good always conquers over evil. And I think in the face of tragedies lately, like the Orlando shootings and, mm-hmm. you know, various shootings um, in New York and, and all over and just, you know, everything in the world seems to be dealing with more starkly lately i think we do need books like the harry potter books we you know we do need something that'll tell us it's okay to hope for goodness and hope for um survival and like what does survival even look like and i feel like those are kind of the questions that i'm wrestling with lately and they've been uh, you know on, on the forefront of my mind 
So you've been reading through the Harry Potter books. Um, have you, has that launched you into reading other fantasy novels and fantasy classics like, like uh, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit or, or taking it's, you into other directions? Yeah, it's so funny that you mentioned Lord of the Rings. So um, that's sort of that's my next journey. So I just started reading the first of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mm-hmm. And I've been wondering a lot about world building because it's such a fascinating skill set to me that I've just never considered. The worlds that I write about are the worlds that I know. And the idea of being able to build a world is so uh, amazing and bizarre, but also really enticing to me. And I don't know how, but as I was going through some of my files on my computer, I happened up upon a, an old syllabus that belonged to um, Juno Diaz. Mm. And and I don't know where the syllabus came from. I must have found it on the internet somewhere and like saved it for one day. And it was an entire class about world building. Mm. And the only prerequisite for this class is he says, you will need to have seen Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, and you need to have read The War of the Rings by Tolkien. And so I was like, well, if I want to understand J.K. Rowling and world building and like, you know, what makes these kinds of books obsession inducing, then maybe mm-hmm. I do need to read The War of the Rings. I've seen the films. I just haven't read the books yet. And I feel like a terrible literary student. <laughs> well, my father once confessed to me, my father, the librarian, once confessed to me that he had never read Les Miserables. You'd only read the uh, classic illustrated comic version. <laughs> like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> well, he, he had read and written about Moby Dick before a number of times mm-hmm. and, and other really lengthy literary works. But for some reason, he'd never done uh, Les Miserables. So it was kind of funny. Wow, that's hilarious. I love that he even found that other version. Uh, it was There was a popular classic there was a whole series of comic books called the Classic Illustrated. Um, really? Yeah, and they would they would just t- tackle different famous classic works and redo them as comic books, and these were not like graphic novel length; these were like short comic book length, and so they somehow what? abbreviated so much material uh, and told their say, the story. Incredible! I've never heard of such a thing. That sounds amazing to me. I feel like that would be such a great primer for students who can't get into classical literature just to like hand them that little comic book and whet their appetite a little bit that's incredible i, I, I think that. the trick now is to track them down because i think they're pretty yeah. all pretty much all um collectors you know collectors editions yeah. or collector items now um wow but yeah it was just fascinating i i can't remember i did find one but it wasn't les miserables it was something else and uh but so I know that it exists as an entire series. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. So That's so your your book one into um, the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and, and, I just started. Uh huh. And, and so what what is your feeling? Are you how do you feel about the, this experience of of now delving into Tolkien after having been through um, Rowling's uh, Harry Potter series? You know, I mean, Tolkien's tone is so different. Mm-hmm. I feel like when I was reading um, J.K. Rowling, for some reason, the Harry Potter books really reminded me of C.S. Lewis and the Narnia Chronicles. Mm-hmm. I, they had that same sort of like snarky-ish humor and that real, that um, unabashed belief that good will triumph over evil. Mm-hmm. And reading Tolkien, 
I can tell that he was a little bit nerdier maybe than CS2 was, <laughs> or just nerdy in a different way because I just got through, um, I don't remember if it was like the prologue or the introduction because it's, and it's like the uh, version that Tolkien edited and he talked about all of the edits he made mm. and, um, and, and like, and I didn't realize that the Lord of the Rings stemmed from his obsession with these languages that he had first created. And then now there's this entire database of like the languages that, you know, help you understand his worlds a little bit better. And, and I don't know if I have the strength to be able to really, really delve into the Lord of the Rings the way that they probably should be. Um, but so far I'm just in awe. And I think I didn't realize what I was getting into before I started <laughs> It, it is mind-boggling how big and deep and complex the world is that, that Tolkien constructs. And you're, you're right. It is kind of a lifetime obsession for him. Um, yes. I mean, some of the articles and books I've read about it suggest that he was building languages, inventing languages, you know, on the playground as a kid. And it was yes. just sort of second nature to him to, to think about well, what I mean, basically, his childhood obsession was what led him to his professional career. You know, in yeah. the study of linguistics and and societies and anthropology um, and cultures and the intersection between all those different things, which then yeah, basically fed his own creative process. Right. That's incredible to me. I think I'm I've become increasingly curious about Tolkien because of the intricacy of the Lord of the Rings. And um, one of his short stories that I love is Leaf by Nickel. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Oh, I love that. It, it's it, yeah. For me, it's like Tolkien in, and C.S. Lewis in conversation. I can almost manage, manage them because they were best friends. Right. Sitting down and saying, Tolkien turning to Lewis and saying, look, I could write one of your stories. And then right. proceed to write <laughs> Leaf by Nickel, which could easily have been a Lewis story. Yes, it absolutely could have. But also, like, the confession of that fear of not finishing the work that he feels he's called to finish is just so palpable and so real that it's like, it's that's the story that I go to whenever I feel like I have a blockage in my writing or I fear, mm. you know, that I'm just going to be a one-book wonder and never again will I write another poem. And it's just incredible to see, you know, into the psyche of these these great brains. Yeah, and it's true. I, I really, I, I think that's that's a really good way of saying it. Um, there is something of that that is really, it speaks to us as creators as well. Is that that mm -hmm. that deep fear, like you said, of yeah. like, what if we don't finish this big project? What if this is it? Um, and what have we been spending our time doing? Um, <laughs> but I do think that the the story does reveal a lot of things about how what we think our projects are and what they may actually be are two different things. Right. That's, that's absolutely important to remember. I think that's very difficult sometimes. It's, yeah, I, I definitely, I, I struggle with that sometimes. Sometimes, you know, especially when you're working on book manuscripts, right? You like beat and, and cajole it and, and trying to force your poems together to make them into this book thing. And at some point, you look back and you realize you've been trying to force it to be something that it wasn't and that it was trying to do mm -hmm. something else the whole time. Right, right. And there's also the matter of once the book is out there, you have absolutely no control over 
how it's interpreted, how it's perceived, what it actually is speaking to people who are complete strangers and to realize that, you know, the meanings that they glean from your words and, and the things that you created are not at all what you intended, but, you know, sometimes even more beautiful and sometimes confusing. <laughs> yes, yes, that's, that's really true. And they'll come, someone will write you or come up to you and say, thank you for writing this poem. I, you know, it spoke to me about this and this and this. And right. you are thinking, that wasn't what I started with, but I'm glad that right. it, it, it carries that power and, and effect, you know, into someone mm-hmm. else's life. Um, <laughs> no, it is, it is this, this thing that we do, you know, this, the work that we do as writers and as creators. Um, I, I think, you know, the connection to, to Leaf by Niggle is a good one is, is that it really is. It's beyond the scope of our own imagination. And it takes what we think of as a work of art is somehow deeply rooted in the world and growing larger and more fantastic than we actually imagined. Um, right. Which is kind of a wonderful thing. A, a, yes, it is. Kind of to, to bring us back. Um Maybe give us a little hope about what we're doing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, before we close out here, um, would you would you like to read us uh, one or two poems? Sure. I will. Uh, sure. So here's one poem, and it's in the book, and it's called Salah, which is a Hebrew word that doesn't have an exact English translation, but my favorite translation of the word is let those who see, see, and let those who hear, hear. Salah. When the sky unhinges, how will we survive? Who will extract the cancers from our lips, the bombs from our arteries? When we make delirious love in the closets of our small, love-starved God, may he honor our passion. Forgive our poisons. May he unplug our churches, fling every cracked bulb back into the sky, and with each retinseled constellation, may he grow like a hot organ. May he watch us come, come to understand worship, that to worship is to survive, is to be wholly human, wholly gripping the other hand. Thank you. Thank you. That, um, you know, there, there's the wonderful, I, I think this is just serendipity or a little bit of coincidence in all this, is that the other night I was just in conversation with uh, my aunt and uncle and my second cousin about what does Selah mean? Oh, wow. <laughs> so, That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> small, small, tiny world. Um, wow. Yeah. So How did that conversation even happen? Um, <clears throat> we were reading in Psalms, of course, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. that's that's where it came up. And and someone asked, "Well, what does Selah mean?" <laughs> wow! And I'd always understood it as a musical direction, which is one of the interpretations. That's kind of like strike up the chords, you know, bring in the music, or brief musical interlude. But um, I like I like the. Uh, the, the interpretation uh, that, that you put forward, I, I think that's, that's a really compelling one. Um, yeah, and I also heard it as um, 
a call to silence, like a call to pause and reflect on the words that came before the Selah. Yeah, kind yeah. of a, it is like a call for a Caesura, a, a, a like right. call for reflection. Um, mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, I mean. And, That's and, incredible. Yeah, so small, small, tiny world. Um, yeah, what a conversation to be having with family. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have odd family. We have interesting conversations <laughs> all the time about stuff. Um, yeah, you can read Les Miserables in comics, talk about Sela. I want to be part of that family. That sounds great. <laughs> well, if you're out here on the on the West Coast sometime, Pacific Northwest, we'll uh, we'll hook you up. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Um, let's see. So our time is about up, and uh, I was wondering just before you go, do you have any 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 last comments that you want to make? Um, do you have in, in sort of the journey that you're taking right now through um, through world building and through through fantasy, um, what's the next stop for you? What what do you see as being either the next book or series that you'll delve into, or the next creative direction this might take? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm curious about fiction writing and even nonfiction writing. I don't know if that's part of my journey or if that's something that I'll, you know, take seriously and really go into, I would love to, but I think lately I'm finally after a long uh, break and, and writing poems that I find myself caring about again. And I was talking to a class recently and telling them that, you know, my first book, I think asks a lot of questions and it, it was the voice of somebody trying trying not to die and trying Mm. to, you know, suss out, you know, what is death and what is pain? And um, I think I'm realizing lately that some of my newer poems and and the stories I care about really want the people that I love to live. And Mm. I feel like that's just a different way of looking at some of the same obsessions, but realizing now that okay, so I am alive. I have survived the things that I've survived. So now I really want everyone to also get to that place, that other side where we can look back and realize, you know, we are survivors. And, and, you know, what is a poem that does that look like? I don't even know, but I think that's sort of what I'm trying to explore. I I think it is like probably the, one of the hardest things to, to give ourselves permission to write. Are, are yeah. poems that explore hope and poems that explore yes. joy. Because um, often we begin in a place of darkness and struggle. And yes. those are, that's when we reach out for language and then trying to yes. find a way to, to carry the power that we've discovered in language into the next space in our lives can be a real yeah. challenge. But I, I think it's yes, it's it's it the work it's the work that we, I mean that's what we we hope to do. I mean it's we hope our lives are at the point where we're we're moving into these next stages into places mm-hmm. where there's more light and more hope, and we're trying to figure out how to say that and how to pass it on to others without sounding like we're preaching or sounding like we're Pollyanna. Right. Exactly. Without you know sounding trite or unsympathetic or you know it needs to have empathy it needs to have the realization of pain but also 
the recognition that hope is a possibility. And that's hard. I've never done that. I don't think I've written poems that have done that, but I would love to. <laughs> and I, I think that's, that's, I think one of the reasons I too really love Tolkien because yeah. somehow in the midst of so much darkness and difficulty, hope survives. And, um, you know, it, it is, it's, it's a strange, marvelous tale where it isn't the powerful, it isn't the strong, it isn't the most charismatic um, person that saves the day. But ultimately it's compassion and empathy and small little people in the grand scheme of things mm-hmm. who end up doing the right things at the right time um, and through their love of each other and through their love of others end up making it work. Yes, I love that. Amen. <laughs> amen, amen. Okay, on that note, we really do have to wrap up. Thank you so much for being part of this this uh, this interview series and uh I hope to hear more from you and uh, read more from you in the, in the near future. Thank you so much, Neil. This was fantastic. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.